Part 4, Practice Makes Perfect With history trending towards justice, we want to spend some time to look at what kind of work media plays in helping us remember the wrong history, or maybe a version of the story that claims to present the facts. We've been critical of the HBO film Miss Evers Boys in our reporting so far. We expect to continue this critical analysis, but don't think that we object to the film or its portrayals. In our conversation with Jean Heller, she brought up a point that helped us appreciate Miss Evers Boys for the work it does do in introducing an audience to the study. I just have a quick question, um, because you you have talked about the movie and you've, you're also talking about kind of like the responsibility of art and the responsibility of history. Do you have an opinion on kind of where to draw that line between being able to tell a story, a compelling story, and then being able to actually tell the history that's important to know? No. Uh, I think um, to draw the line and, and to, to say that art has to be totally accurate historically is to put limitations on free speech. We've already touched on how the economic disparity is misrepresented in the film, and we've touched on how Dr. Dibble's involvement in the study was simplified through his on-screen persona. What remains is a laundry list of claims we could lodge against the film Miss Evers Boys. It was obvious for us how this film differs from the historical events. The opening title card sequence gives the impression that the film is depicting historical events an even more bold claim than when we see, quote, based on a true story. The car that Miss Evers drove was not even accurate to the type or style of car she drove in real life, which you can find pictures of in the National Archive. And Lawrence Fishburne's character never existed, and the relationship that the film spends so much time on never happened. In fact, him being in the film brings up a rather confusing situation. That you will run into if you haven't already in asking people about what they know of the Tuskegee study, is that some of them get the Tuskegee study confused with the Tuskegee Airmen. Have you run into that? Uh, yeah, because they seem to have taken kind of the same monikers, like the Tuskegee Experiments. Um, there's a uh, jazz album that kind of references them both being forms of experiments, and so there seems to be this crossover. And there also seems to be a cultural crossover because in Miss Evers Boys, Lawrence Fishburne plays a character in the movie, but he's also a Tuskegee Airman in a movie from, I believe, like a year earlier. And so That's a lot true. of people culturally seem to have made that connection, it seems. And there was no connection. So with media being a constant onslaught of information fighting for supremacy in our minds, we need to take some time and remember what our parents always said. Just because it's on television doesn't make it real. Eunice Rivers, portrayed as Miss Evers in the film, never testified to anyone. She was a diligent and hardworking nurse who was trained at a time when listening to the doctor was the word of the day. She may have been affected by the study and what was happening, but she said very little that gives us any indication on how she felt or thought about everything. The fact that the film uses Nurse Rivers as the titular character in the HBO film, it's weird to think how far they deviate from the known history. For example, she's first shown running a wing of a hospital as a competent nurse standing above the rest. This is true, but the error comes from the fact that she's working during the daytime. Nurse Rivers worked the overnight shifts as a nurse, and her dislike of working that shift was a major incentive for her to work on the Tuskegee syphilis study. 
There's also a part in the film where Nurse Rivers works as a domestic housemaid in a home for a white family. From our reporting and research, she never worked in such a capacity and in fact maintained her position as a night shift nurse when the Tuskegee study was in a low period. That leads to another misrepresentation from the film. This study, while lasting for 40 years, was not being constantly observed or worked on. There was not an aggressively active participation from the physicians like we see in the film. Nurse Rivers was the main point of contact, with the doctors from the PHS only coming for a week or two once a year, otherwise maintaining contact, information on, and death records about the subjects fell on Eunice Rivers solely, eventually falling to another nurse when Eunice Rivers advanced in age. In fact, Miss Evers' boys, the title of the film, is the name of their dance and music group and is an homage to Miss Evers and is meant to show the respect they had for her, which in history was true. The subjects of the Tuskegee syphilis study, through everything they endured, never said anything negative about Nurse Rivers, and always commended her on her professionalism and her hard work, not the representation she was given in the film. Regardless, the only reference to anything relating to Miss Evers boys and the participants naming something after her is Miss Rivers Lodge which was a bit of a dark inside joke about Eunice Rivers' successful campaign to have the participants receive a burial stipend to help their families pay for funeral costs. A workaround to the refusal of Prudential to provide life insurance, not some fun name for a musical dance group. It's easy to get lost in the adjustments that were made to history for the sake of story, and we can spend much more time criticizing the film, but we need to remember that this film is a simplification of a very complex and stacked history. It would be impossible to expect a film to capture the true scope of the study, even at a two-hour runtime. But what it does offer is an introduction into a subject that may make us uncomfortable, but is worth talking about for the sake of history, for the sake of legacy, and for the sake of the future. While the exposure of the Tuskegee syphilis study, the lawsuit, and the subsequent hearings led to adjustments in how research was conducted and the implementation of informed consent, a critical safeguard to medical malpractice now, the Tuskegee syphilis study is far from the only medical ethics scandal perpetrated by the United States. Dr. Susan M. Reverby was working on her book, Examining Tuskegee, in 2004. She was in Pittsburgh, where many files about the study were being made available for the first time. So essentially what happened was I was doing some other interviews in Pittsburgh and Steve Thomas actually, was friend of Ben, who was then teaching at Pitt. And he said, you know, Cutler has papers here. And Cutler was important only because in the early 90s when there were a couple of documentaries made about Tuskegee, he's one of the docs that's still alive. And so he's the one who gets interviewed and who says, you know, there was nothing wrong. We did it right, blah, blah, blah. So I thought, wow, I wonder if there's anything in his papers that, you know, just is more insight into his viewpoint. Um, but mostly I was there to look at the Perrin papers because Thomas Perrin had been the Surgeon General um, in the 30s. And so I mostly was looking at Perrin, and then I get the boxes for um, Cutler, and there's one or two of the published articles on Tuskegee. There's nothing else on Tuskegee. And then there, all there is is all this material on Guatemala, and I pick it up, you know, and the first thing says a study of, you know, inoculation syphilis. And I'm going, What? What she discovered was a series of letters from a physician who worked on the Tuskegee study talking about what seemed to be a completely different secret study about syphilis conducted in Guatemala. 
and I start reading. And my, my husband was actually with me because he's a theoretical physicist. So it's great because he has to stick his brain and a piece of paper with him when, he, when we travel so he can come with me and keep working in another room. <laughs> and I remember running into him going, oh, 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 my God, look at this. What is this? Um, but so I found all that material, but it was 2004, and I was just about to go into the um, papers of the, the medical records of the men had just opened up in, in the archives, and so I had a chance to go look at the medical records. I didn't have time to really deal with the Guatemala stuff, so I sort of put it aside for a couple of years, and I thought it would work into the book, and I had parts of it in the book, and then it was just too long and too complicated, and so I put it away. And then in 2009, when the book was done, I by then, my husband's brother actually had moved to Pittsburgh, and so there was some place to stay, so we went to visit him, and then I went back to the archives and looked at the stuff again, and then I thought, oh, my God, wow, this is just amazing. So I, I had a paper I had to give somewhere, and I said, okay, I'll do it on this. To write this paper and to make the subject whole, she found help from who we thought would be an unlikely ally, the director of the CDC. In the process of writing it, one of the things that happens when you're a historian of medicine is you don't want to get the medicine wrong, because if you do, then the doctors go nuts. So you can make one medical mistake, and then they just think you're an idiot. <laughs> um, so you sort of want to have someone who's a physician look some of the medicine over to make sure you just didn't make some dumb medical mistake. Mm. Uh, so by the time I was working on it in the 90s, I had become friends with David Sensor, who had been the director of the CDC toward the end of the study. And he's the one in 1969 who makes the decision to keep Tuskegee going. Um, and then he oversees the end of it in 72. And so I had been interviewing him, and because of the internet, which is really interesting, and because of email, we actually stayed in contact. Oh, wow. But think about it. You know, if it hadn't been for that, you know, it's not like you would write him or call him. But the internet, you know, every once in a while I would send him stuff. He was interested in history, um, as physicians often are toward the end of their lives. And so Dave and I were writing back and forth, and I would send him things. And so at one point I said, I was in actually in Atlanta, I think he got me to give a talk at CDC or something on the Tuskegee stuff. And we, he was driving me to CDC and he said, you know, I never understood why anybody thought we would have infected the men in Tuskegee. And I said, well, Dave, there's Guatemala. And he said to me, what do you know about Guatemala? And I said, being a good researcher, so Dave, what do you know about Guatemala? <laughs> and he said, well, you know, I'd heard rumors about it in the division, but I've never seen anything on it. And I said, well, I found the papers and I'm writing it up. And I said, would you read it for me as my aging syphilologist because I don't want to make any medical mistakes, right? And he said, sure. So I sent him the paper when I finished it. And instead of just writing me back, he called me, which he normally didn't do. And he said, wow, when this comes out, you know, it's going to be a disaster. This disaster that David Sensor saw coming was the details about the Guatemala syphilis study. These experiments were similar to Tuskegee in only a few ways. They targeted vulnerable populations and the studies were about syphilis. Beyond that, the Guatemala syphilis study takes a different but equally questionable course. The study was conducted from 1946 to 1948, a short time compared to Tuskegee. John Cutler, who once ran the Tuskegee study, now running a study of his own in Guatemala, would lead the experiments to deliberately infect over 1,300 people with syphilis, gonorrhea, and chancroid. These studies were focused on testing the uses of penicillin and how it treated the ailments. These affected individuals would expose over 5,000 people, including children, orphans, 
child and adult prostitutes, Guatemalan Indians, leprosy patients, mental patients, prisoners, and soldiers. David Sensor showed a lot of interest in Dr. Susan Reverby's work, but she, in a way, expected her research on the study to be buried. Oh, Dave, no one's going to read this. It's going to be in this obscure history journal I don't even read, right, which is true. It's in the, it was published in the Journal of Policy History, right? I don't even read that. So um, he said, no, he's me, and he's in his 80s, mind you. He says to me, no, in the age of the Internet, everybody reads everything. It'll get out. And CDC looks terrible. They should know about it. And I said, well, fine. I don't care. You know, it's going to be published. I don't, you know, whatever. So that's when he shared it with people, um, in particular with Harold Jaffe, who was at that time the associate director for science. So then Harold called me and he said, can you send me more material? So I, you know, I cleaned up my notes. I sent him everything. I sent, I made copies of my Xeroxes. I sent them to him. And then he sent a man named John Douglas, who was then the head of the STD division, up to Pitt to look at the same material. And then Douglas writes a report. And my paper and Douglas's report start making the rounds at CDC. And, I mean, the parts of this are just hilarious. So Tom Frieden, who's then the head of the CDC, went to medical school with one of my friends from history of medicine, who's also a doctor. So evidently, Frieden called up my buddy and said, can we trust her? You know, is she a responsible historian? And, you know, my friend said, yes, of course, and blah, blah, blah. So then it went from CDC to NIH and from NIH to the White House, I think Domestic Policy Council, and then to state. And then it just kept blowing up. And then um, at that point, um, Ezekiel Emanuel, who is Rahm Emanuel's brother. So Rahm Emanuel at that point was still the chief of staff for Obama um, because this is the summer of 2010. And um, Zeke is running sort of point on the, and he's a medical ethicist and he um, was the head of the bioethics division at NIH, but also sort of the point person on the ACA. And he was, he's always been interested in research ethics issues. And I think he had his own agenda of how he thought this could be used. So he, vouched for me and he knew my work and so he vouched for me and that's how the 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 whole thing happened essentially but it was really also because of the people at cdc were behind it and because there was such respect for dave sensor who passed away six months later actually and uh, so i always think that dave really is the hero of, of the guatemala story because if it hadn't if we hadn't been friends if he hadn't passed it on to people at cdc it would have gone no you know it just would have been another story out there but because then they, then they were able to get the government to realize that they should apologize before my paper came out, that's what happened. So that's how it happened. It was just amazing. The whole thing was just amazing. Now, it probably doesn't surprise anyone to learn that these kinds of ethical scandals are numerous and still continue today. With a more recent case being in 2012, where GlaxoSmithKline was fined by the Argentinian government for alleged irregularities in vaccine trials involving children, many under the age of one. GlaxoSmithKline says it conducts clinical studies all over the world, respecting laws and meeting the highest standards of ethics and quality. If that is the case, what does the international standard look like to allow so many ethics violations involving, often poor, undereducated minority groups to take place. The fact that we have to use our mental bandwidth to make sense of fact versus fiction is usually difficult enough, but with the added layers brought by complementary narratives truly further complicates how we are able to understand or even remember details correctly. Dr. Reverby 
also raised a good point. Keeping that memory alive, keeping the lessons and the legacy alive, requires a constituency. People invested in the story and what it has to tell us. Without it... Epilogue. A Second Death.